Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Hello, Louise. Hello. Hello, lovely divers. Welcome to episode 70 of the Diving In podcast, which Louise and I are recording on unceded Wachak Noongar land in Western Australia. Lou, you and I have both been interstate since our last podcast recording. We've had a few ups and downs and a few delays. One of the delays was because one of our books took me a lot longer to read than I anticipated because it was just so incredibly dense and I felt to give it justice I had to read it really Mm. thoroughly so it just took me a lot longer anyway we've we've finally made it you've you've been um, unwell but you're on the mend we hope yes so I'm really looking forward to discussing these books today so today Lou and I are doing something a little bit different we're talking about two new books that have come out recently. One is a fiction book and the other is a non-fiction book, but they have very strong parallels. It just happened that I was reading the fiction book in a horrified way, I'll preempt, when I saw the author of the non-fiction book on television. He was on The Drum, which is an mm. Australian current affairs sort of program. And he was being interviewed about the contents of it and how he came to write it. And I literally got goosebumps mm. because of the connections between the two books. his book and the one I was yes. currently reading. And I think I texted you straight away mm. and said, oh my gosh, we should do these on the podcast. And I do think this is an example of the zeitgeist in 2023. I, do. I agree <laughs> completely. So Louise and I decided to read both books. So we've both read both of the books and Lou's going to talk about one of them with a bit of me chipping in and I'm going to talk about the other one. So here we are. Here we are. Here we are. So the first book is the book Killing for Country by David Marr, A Family Story, and this is the non-fiction book. For those of you that are not aware, David Marr is a very distinguished and highly respected Walkley Award-winning journalist here in Australia. He started his professional career as a lawyer, but he left very soon to become a journalist. Uh, And he wrote for the Bulletin and the National Times newspaper, of which he eventually became the editor. Uh, And he was an ABC and and, um, television and radio journalist and still is. He still writes for the Guardian newspaper and the Saturday paper. So I think it's fair to say that his politics are progressive. He's written many other books, um, some biographies, including quite an uncomplimentary biography of Garfield Barwick, uh, the former Chief Justice of the High Court. And I think it's fair to say he's always been interested in power and institutional power. I just want to read the very beginning note of the book. I remember my great-grandmother. She had a crumpled face and faded away when I was too young to notice. She was a blank. Stories weren't told about her. In 2019, an ancient uncle of mine asked me to find what I could about Maud. He knew so little. I dug out some books. It wasn't long before I was looking at a photograph of her father in the uniform of the native police. 
I was appalled and curious. I've been writing about the politics of race all my career. I know what side I'm on. Yet that afternoon, I found in the lower branches of my family, Sub-Inspector Reginald Orr, a professional killer of Aborigines. Then I discovered his brother Darcy was also in the massacre business. Writing is my trade. I knew at once I had to tell the story of my family's bloody business with the Aboriginal people. That led me step by step into the history of the native police. He writes beautifully, doesn't you, he? Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that moment? Yeah. I, I wouldn't have known that what that uniform was, but I imagine no, the first I thing either. you do is say, what, what is... And it was what, quite was an ornate uniform. Yeah. There was a lot of brocade yes. and um, it, it, it almost seemed a parody of a uniform in some respects, didn't it? It you doesn't know, match for, the job, that's for sure. But also <laughs> being in Australia and the heat and, yeah. you know, like it, it just it just seems like a bit of a daft uniform, doesn't it's it? Daft. Yeah, really daft uniform. Anyway, so this is the chronicle of a very dark period in the first hundred years of the British settlement in Australia. I want to sort of almost do a warning because the book contains lots of details of the massacre of Aboriginal people. Uh, I'm not going to go through all those massacres and I'm not going to even follow them in a linear way, one after the other. Um, my review will be more superficial but of that than that, but I, I think it's fair that we, mm. you know, we tell yeah. people that. It's not an easy book to read. The first white colonial settlement of New South Wales was in 1788. Essentially, Governor Arthur Phillip, soldiers and about 850 convicts. Uh, and into that settlement, 20 years later, in 1809, comes the Richard Jones. And he's a 23-year-old clerk, and he's trading in, in wool and, and whale oil at the time. He comes out to Australia to help his boss set up, but his boss is a bit of a drunk, so he leaves Richard to run the show. And by that time, the colony had already seen off Governor Philip and Governor Bly, and the new Governor Macquarie was arriving at the same time as Jones. And Aboriginal populations were everywhere um, in and around the new Sydney town. But of course, there were many, many clans and tribes throughout the whole of New South Wales. And another thing that I think is important to say is Aboriginal people are not all the same. They're from you know, one part of the country to the next. Yep. They have different customs and traditions. Different language. Different laws and language groups. Yeah. And that remains the case. I think in the Kimberley alone, where we're from, yeah. Western Australia, in the north of Western Australia, there are 33 different language groups, Kimberley Creole being one of them. But to white settlers in the 1800s, they were all blacks. And I think for a long time, Australians didn't really appreciate how diverse the different nations of Aboriginal people in Australia were. Yeah. Um, at the time Jones arrives, relations in Sydney between the settlers and the Aboriginal people are reasonably peaceful, but beyond Sydney, north and south, um, the settlers and squatters had cleared large amounts of bush and they'd clashed and massacred many, many Aboriginal people. And when I say they'd seen off governors, I'm referring to the increasingly embedded power and influence of the wool growers in Australia who were not afraid to speak out against governors who didn't promote their interests. And bear in mind that a lot of the wool growers and squatters that came out, a lot of them were Scots actually, not mm. English, they retained influence in the UK. So they had these connections going back home that they could call on. That's true. So what struck me about this book, which is, you know, a chronicle of this terrible time, it's essentially about power and corruption and also how, in many respects, 
nothing has changed. Yeah. And I'm laughing, but I'm laughing in a kind of defeated way. If you reflect on the institutions and the building blocks of what was meant to be a civilised society in the 1800s and the power and influence that each of those institutions sort of sought to wield, then it's a remarkably contemporary tale. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you've got your politicians, the governor, the legislative council, answerable to the colonial secretary back in London. You know, he's got his soldiers, his attorney general, and, and there's obviously the courts. There's the church, of course, the bishop, and imported into New South Wales was a very deep prejudice and mistrust between Protestants and Catholics. Yeah. And don't forget you've got the king. Yes, yes. Who's, who's sending people out with an instruction to be respectful of the Indigenous people. Yes, yes. To accommodate, you know, none of which was done. No, no. And then exactly. after King William, was that Victoria was the next one after Yes, her? yes. And just completely ignored every time. Mm. There's the press, competing newspapers representing opposing issues and sides. And the newspapers, of course, were set up in all the little new towns that were being built. Yeah, that's true. North and south. And they also were having their influence on their local populations. But then, of course, the most significant group were the men with their commercial interests in the colony. You know, merchants like Jones and then wool farmers and pastoralists such as MacArthur. And they sought to ingratiate themselves with all of the other institutions, the governor, the bishop, the newspapers, just to make sure that all the decisions were going their way. And eventually, of course, there were banks and trading organisations. And Jones, Richard Jones eventually served on many of those institutions. Yeah, he was either the treasurer or the chair. Yeah, well, he ended up oh, He was president. on every board. <laughs> he ended up as the president of the Bank of New South Wales, yeah, yeah. but with the largest overdraft of anybody. Yeah. I thought this was really interesting as well because this is Charles Darwin. So after marvelling at the giant tortoises of the Galapagos, Charles Darwin set sail for Sydney. Curious to observe the society evolving there, he found the Aboriginal blacks skilled, good-humoured and acute far from the utterly degraded beings as usually represented. But the whites appalled him. Yep. The whole community is rancorously divided into parties on almost every subject. Amongst those who from their station of life ought to rank with the best, many live in such open profligacy that respectable people cannot associate with them. There is much jealousy between the children of the rich emancipist and the free settlers, the former being pleased to consider honest men as interlopers. The whole population, poor and rich, are bent on acquiring wealth. Mm. The subject of wool and sheep grazing amongst the highest orders is of preponderant interest. The very low ebb of literature is strongly marked by the emptiness of the booksellers' shops. I just loved it. uh, He's an outsider coming in, but with an educated eye and just listening to the conversations Mm. and watching all the grabs for power. And it's Mm. all these people who were second-born sons who've come out here, opportunists, people perhaps who don't fit in, or people who've been convicted of fraud or crimes in in England, and they're all elbowing each other out of the way Mm. and jostling to make their mark in this new place. In this new place, yeah, absolutely. It's so base and grubby. It is base and grubby. (laughs) And, of course, many of the decisions that this sort of cohort of power were making involved Aboriginal people. And, and different governors that came had different views. They, they received direction from London, from the colonial secretary, which, as you've pointed out, you know, ultimately it comes from the king, uh, and from the government in England. Uh, and politically the governors were either 
Tory appointments so conservative or they were Whigs, so yeah. more liberal or progressive. Yeah. And, and I'm generalising there, obviously, but this influenced their views, but it also influenced how they were perceived by the squatters. And there were discussions and debates about rescuing Aboriginal people, you know, making them into people of faith. Religion comes into it a lot. Religion's huge, as, as you can imagine, you know, in, yeah. in a new place where, you know, suspicion is rife. There was a lot of discussion about, you know, education and institutions were set up to educate Aboriginal people and views were divided. But, of course, the squatters wanted more and more land. So clashes were inevitable and there were violent retributions on both sides. And as you mentioned earlier, there can be absolutely no doubt that they were instructed to treat Aboriginal people with respect and there can be no doubt that they knew at the time that the land they were clearing was not terra nullis. Mm. It was not their land. It wasn't a big empty land that belonged to nobody. That's completely debunked. In fact, it's hard to see how that argument was ever mm. relied on because contemporaneously there is so much acknowledgement, yeah. so much reference, speeches in Parliament, letters. You know, letters to the editor, letters back and forth, and, and there was this sort of constant tension between this idea that blacks are responding violently to the usurpation of their lands. So not only in the colony but back in England where this was, you know, and obviously an issue for England in relation to other colonies as well. Yeah. Britain was in the process of ending slavery elsewhere in the world while all of this was going on in Australia. And there's a, there's a report that was actually prepared for Parliament that I just want to read as well, Buxton's report that was in the 1930s that was prepared for Parliament. And this is a reference to the land being removed. Too often their territory had been usurped, their property seized, their numbers diminished, their character debased, mm. the spread of civilization impeded, European vices and diseases have been introduced amongst them and they have been familiarised with the use of our most potent instruments for the subtle or the violent destruction of human life, in other words, brandy and gunpowder. Yeah. It might be presumed that the native inhabitants of any land have an incontrovertible right to their own soil, a plain and sacred right, however, which seems not to have been understood. Europeans have entered their borders uninvited, and when there, they have not only acted as if they were undoubted lords of the soil, but they have punished the natives as aggressors if they have evinced a disposition to live in their own country. Mm. It's just terrible. It's just a despicable, despicable yeah. period of time. I think one of the issues for me is that while there were a lot of acknowledgements that this land did not belong to the people who were taking it, it was more that white people didn't of value, mm. uh, didn't place any value rather, on the use that the Aboriginals were putting to the land. Yeah. So they didn't place any value on the customs or the traditions of the way of life that Aboriginal lived. So to me, that was what they really used as their le lever, knowing that they shouldn't be using the land is one thing, but there was a complete lack of respect yeah. for the traditions and the way of life the nomadic way of life that Aboriginal people had. Yeah. There were the most catastrophic clashes with Aboriginal tribes and news would filter back to Sydney of the murders in the bush. There were often clashes between the shepherds of flocks who were, in fact, former convicts. Yeah. 
And they, of course, were doing the dirty work of the pastoralists. Mm. But there were also plenty of settlers who complained about the barbaric treatment of Aboriginal people and news of the massacres reached the UK and the British press. Sometimes the governors, depending on their political point of view, offered only a rebuke. Uh, On other occasions, they insisted people were put on trial, often with the inevitable acquittals because settlers and pastoralists clubbed together to preserve the evidence that served their interests. Uh, And there's a point about Aboriginal people giving evidence that I'll mention in a minute. There were also regional magistrates appointed and they were sent to do a local report or an assessment of the massacres or, or the incidents. And those magisterial appointments were often grace and favour appointments anyway. You know, depending on who was in favour with who at the time, who had the ear of who at the time. And they weren't people that had any background in law. Absolutely no training whatsoever. they had no understanding. No training whatsoever. They they were often just somebody who'd been a successful sort of pastoralist. And they were so far away from Sydney. And I think this is the point that we really have to make is that, you know, as the pastoralists were pushing north and south, in communication terms today, obviously not. But in those yes. days, they were so days far and away. Days, days and days away. Yeah. So I just want to move quickly forward here. Over a period of 20 years, Jones makes and loses an enormous fortune, Richard Jones. He consolidates his influence and relationships and his enemies in the colony. Uh, he diversifies his business. He joins boards. He joins committees. And he also joins the Legislative Council. He brings a very young wife, Mary, back from the UK in 1825, as well as a more precious cargo, which were some Saxony Merino sheep. And they were the first German-bred Merinos in Australia. And they were soon followed by some of Mary's brothers, the Ewer boys, of which there were several. And Richard Jones's sponsorship of them into the colony, to Australia, of course, was an ulterior motive because he knew that they would be cheap and loyal lieutenants for him. It's the Ewer brothers who are David Marr's direct descendants. It's interesting, isn't it? You just really get the sense that Richard Jones is not content being the merchant class anymore. No. And he's obviously seen what's happening with the wool growers and the wealth that's being amassed, and he wants a slice of that for himself, Absolutely. doesn't he? Absolutely. He was hungry for that yeah. power. Yeah. So he uses his relationship with the governor to acquire an estate south of Sydney, which he installs his brother-in-law, Edmund Newer on that property. And Newer quickly has a reputation for driving the sheep beyond the land that they've been granted and encroaching on other people's land. And of course, that causes problems as well. And then he, Jones later acquires more land north of Sydney towards the Liverpool Plains, where you're also um, relocates. And that's in the land of the Camilleroy tribe. And by the time Edmund Muir arrives there, there is already considerable unrest and clashes between squatters and shepherds with the Camilleroy peoples. And then later in uh, 1838, there is the terrible massacre of the Wirrawai people at Mile Creek. And I just do want to just mention the Mile Creek massacre for a number of reasons. It was just one in a series of very violent events in northeastern New South Wales. It was described by a magistrate from Musselbrook at the time, Edward Denny Day, as part of a war of extermination. And and the summers of 1837 and 1838 were especially violent. 
I'm not going to go into the details of the actual massacre itself because it's extremely sad, but it's fair to say that at the time that it occurred, the Wirrawai tribe had in fact been seeking reprieve from the violence and they'd been given sanctuary at a camp at the time. So it was a completely sort of unprovoked mm. attack. There was a trial uh, and there'd been trials before, as I mentioned, but this one was successful, which was highly unusual. One of the reasons trials were not usually successful, you know, following massacres, was because Aboriginal people couldn't give evidence in court because they couldn't administer an oath to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, etc. because they weren't Christian. Yeah. So they didn't believe in heaven and hell, so they didn't believe in the consequences. And so it was said they couldn't be relied upon to tell the truth. Just another device to... Yeah. prevent the truth from getting out. Um, but in this case, after two trials, there were um, convictions of seven perpetrators and it was the first time that British subjects were executed for the murder of Aboriginal people. 28 people in total died. But they only succeeded on one count. Yes, of the child. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was it's the second trial. So the first trial... They collapsed. collapsed. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, and I'll mention him a bit later on, because there's not many white heroes in this tale. But for me, Plunkett, the Attorney General, yeah. is somebody to be admired. Yeah. He, he didn't always no. follow through, but he followed through on many occasions and he, his name comes up a, a bit later as well. The other impact of the Mile Creek massacre was that the squatters changed tactic. And following the Mile Creek mm. massacre they decided that rather than having open warfare with Aboriginal people, they would trick them. They would offer them flour and damper and food and they would poison them. And so there was, after 1837, 1838, there were significant poisonings of Aboriginal people and certainly Edmund Ewer is implicated in that period as well. Yeah. Um, in the late 1830s, around this time, Jones, Richard Jones' experiences significant financial losses. He's got huge debts. The price of wool's dropped. You know, he loses something of his reputation, I think, as well. He, he resigns from the Legislative Council, also from the Bank of New South Wales, where I said he had the largest overdraft. Yes. He's very undeterred by his bankruptcy and he, he seizes the opportunity to buy sheep when they're at a rock-bottom price, which is very canny of him. Yeah. And he buys thousands and thousands and thousands of sheep. He, of course, doesn't declare them. He puts them in the name of uh, Edmund and one of the other Ewer brothers, and they then both follow this trend of pushing north into the area, the state that we, of course, call Queensland today. But at the time, New South Wales was from the Tasman Sea to Cape York, was all New South Wales at yeah. the time. And what I did find really useful in this book were the little maps. Yes. So there's some lovely sort of almost hand-sketch maps very frequently in the book, every, every, every chapter or so. And, and what that helped me understand was the scale of the country we're talking about. I mean, you and I know mm. how enormous Australia yeah. is. Yeah. But the scale of the country we're talking about, but also how many tribes mm. were on that land. Mm. We're not talking about one or two tribes. We're no. talking about hundreds yeah. of tribes. So areas that they'd be pushing into in Queensland would have three, four, five, six different tribes yeah. in those areas for whom that land was precious and for whom they had 
different customs in relation to that land. So the, for me, they, they, they really helped with scale, those maps. They did. But by the 1840s, Richard Jones and Edmund Muir and their families are living in the Moreton Bay colony of the Brisbane River uh, in the country of the Yugara people, which will feature in the book that you're yes. going to talk about. And then in 1845, one of Mary and Edmund's brothers, John Ewer, is found dead in the Brisbane River, believed to have been killed by the Yugara people. And then this, the impact of this, because of family connection, because of the status of this family and his connection to Jones, John Ewer's connection to Jones, his death assumes a particular significance. I'm not suggesting that it shouldn't assume some significance, but it assumed an inflated significance. And there were calls for reprise, violent reprisals by Jones and by his Edmund Ewer for, for violent reprisals against Aboriginal people. But from that point on, for a long period of time, any Aboriginal mm. man slain at the Moreton Bay settlement, and it went on for years, yeah. was described as a killer of John Ewer. Yeah. And rewards were offered for the capture of significant Aboriginal leaders and warriors under the ruse that they were the principal suspects in the death of John Ewer, yeah. which is just yeah. uh, ridiculous. I'm just going to read another little passage as well. Any excuse. Just 19th century gaslighting. <laughs> it is. It's just terrible, isn't it? John Ewer was the first gentleman to die in the fighting at Moreton Bay and the news of his death was reported across the colony in tones of high indignation. Though nothing whatever was known of the circumstances of his killing, graphic reports were soon in print. Aborigines arrived at the hut clamouring for tobacco. Ewer refused their demands. A mob attacked all at once. Ewer died fighting gallantly and his body was presenting innumerable wounds of the most frightful nature, was thrown into the river. Papers reported the death and thrown the district into the greatest alarm and consternation. The Commissioner of Crown Lands hurried to the scene. Tracks were followed to a deserted camp in the scrub where articles stolen from the hut were lying about. Simpson concluded whoever was responsible for the killing was, by that time, far away. Jones demanded protection and a corporal and eight men from the 99th were sent to guard the families at Wyvernhoe. Other squatters could only dream of the authorities taking such mm. care of them. Mm. And I just thought that was incredible too, yeah. wasn't it? Because it just characterised also this competition that was going on between the squatters as to who could have troops yep. protecting them at the time. Yep. Um, and I want to move to 1846. It's a very significant year in the colony for a couple of reasons. There's the appointment of the new Governor Fitzroy. That's not one of the reasons, although he is a huge agent for change. The first reason is that finally, after many, many years of badgering and a concerted campaign by squatters and related interests in the UK and in Australia, the English government decides to give in and grant leases to the landholders. I mean, this is such a turning point in our history, isn't it? Yeah. For the past 60 years, they only had the right to run their sheep or cattle over the land. There was no ownership. Fitzroy, Governor Fitzroy, is told by the Colonial Secretary Gray in the UK that the leases will be granted and eventually settlers will be able to buy their land. But pastoral lease is often a way of ownership anyway because we're talking about massive yeah. amounts of, of Crown land. However, there is a rider. Their right to use the land will be subject to Aboriginal people being given the right to peaceably use the land 
to fish and hunt and live. And this is a pretty momentous development. And Gray orders Fitzroy to tell the squatters and the wool growers the terms upon which the pastoral leases will be granted. And there's a complete failure of will, isn't there? Yeah. He doesn't tell the wool growers. He's too scared to tell them. Yeah. It's just, oh, it's just awful. So there's, although there was some discussion of it in the House of Lords, there was not a discussion of this rider in the House of Lords. There were no new laws in the, in the UK Parliament. Nobody tells the Aboriginal people. But, and this is, we mentioned Plunkett. Yeah. Attorney General Plunkett suggests that the clauses are put in the pastoral leases. That's right. And, of course, from a legal standpoint today, yeah. from cases that we've been through, yeah. Marbo and Wick, native title issue cases, we know that pastoral leases today do not automatically extinguish native title. Yeah. So, as I said, Plunkett, you know, he survived many governors. He prosecuted the Mile Creek murderers. To me, he is a bit of a hero in a landscape where there are very few white yeah. heroes. The second significant thing that happened in 1846 is that the Governor Fitzroy gave the go-ahead for the setting up of a small police force known as the Native Police. And this is a force commanded by white officers but staffed by black troopers. Uh, So it's essentially blacks turning on blacks. And the way they did this was to recruit Aboriginal men from closer to Sydney, yeah, and far away from yes. the actual people that they're Having going nothing to be, at yeah. all to... Beha- these yeah. the, the troopers that... And it was a very small force to start with, yeah. uh, run by Frederick Walker. But it was a, a, a very deliberate strategy to choose men who would have absolutely no kinship... Yes. ...or connection, no shared culture or language with the people that they were going to be policing. And I think police is actually quite a tame word because they weren't policing. They weren't settling down unrest. They were basically killing anyone who was getting in the way. Or even people who weren't getting in the way. Yes. People peaceably sitting... At a river, hunting or fishing. And this, of course, was a strategy that had been employed in other colonies with other police forces that you use the native peoples to police, in inverted commas, their own people. And it gave white officers enormous deniability. So the interesting thing is that the white officers didn't do a lot of the killing, although subsequent officers did. Initially, they didn't. And it meant that they could almost sit on their horses and separate themselves. Sit on the horse and send the troops in and scrub and then finish the job and come out. But, of course, it also meant, because they were meant to report the number of people that they were killing at the time, but, of course, it meant that they weren't reporting them because they didn't know. Yep. They had no idea. And all they said was that they were dispersing them. Yes. Yes, a terrible word. They just used the word dispersing. Which we now and the word disperse was used in a lot of newspaper reports yeah, as well, it, wasn't it? There are so many inquiries into this force and they're asked, what does dispersing mean? And it means to kill. Yes, it does. And this leads to the third part of, of this book in the 1860s, which is about Edmund Ewer's two sons, Reg and Darcy, who both became officers in the native police. And so for me, 1846 is sort of momentous because it represents this sort of culmination really of the power of the squatter class 
60 years after their arrival, they finally get what they want. They get the land that they want and they get their own private vigilante police force to defend their right to the land. It's the most extraordinary abuse of power. So Richard Jones and his brother were big supporters of the native police. Um, As I said, he... Previously, Jones was a particularly vocal proponent calling for violent reprisals against Aboriginal people. It's interesting. He was very, a very strong a proponent for violent reprisals when he was in the process of clearing land. Yeah. But he was also known to be a man who was quite happy to have Aboriginal people on his property living, fishing, hunting. So it was, it was just about, I need the land first. Yeah. And then, then you, I'm prepared to be generous. Yes, then I can be have more largesse. It's terrible. Yeah. Um, Edmund was not of the same character at all. He was also a magistrate. Uh, he was appointed magistrate. He was quite a um, social climbing, position climbing man by the sounds of things. Yeah. Uh, he felt that a lot of his fellow magistrates were far too lenient on Aboriginal people. but And so he was a big supporter of the, of the police. But it is fair to say there were plenty of people in New South Wales and Queensland who felt the native police caused more trouble than they were worth uh, and that they had no legal authority to carry out the acts they did and that the acts were indiscriminate and they complained. Uh, There there are a lot of complaints on record. Interesting complaints that I certainly wasn't aware of at school. So this whole period of history. We were taught nothing about None of this. No. I went to school in Queensland. Mm. From uh, 77 to 82, I was never taught anything about any of this. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Because, and in fact, I was surprised how much information there was. Yeah. I mean, I I knew about it, but I I hadn't appreciated how contemporaneously Mm, there were were letters and reports and it's extraordinary. So many parliamentary inquiries into the Native Police. Absolutely. So in uh, 1862, Edmund Ewer calls in a favour and gets his 18-year-old son, Reg Ewer, a cadetship with no training, no experience of life at all, uh, a cadetship with the native police uh, under the command of of Frederick Walker. And not long after he is appointed uh, as a cadet, he leads a significant massacre in Bowen in Queensland and then plenty more of them follow and I'm not going to go into those in any detail. In the 1860s, the squatters and the land clearers are pushing further and further north. In 1865, the price of wool falls. It hadn't rained for two years. The Queensland economy is in a lot of trouble. It's still hard to comprehend, and I've been on these sheep stations, uh, and even though we know how big this country is, but to make a profit, they needed to run millions and millions of sheep and cattle over the land. And to do so, they then needed more land. Yeah. So they're pressing further and further north. Reg's brother, Darcy, who's a few years younger than him, also becomes a native police officer, the only one with a few troopers in the grasslands and tropics of the Gulf of Carpentaria. Uh, he's based in Burketown, which is 2,000 kilometres north of Brisbane. Darcy was a murderer on a huge scale. He was a piece of work, wasn't he? He was unbelievable. You know, I, I almost objected a little bit to the sort of almost swashbuckling kind of adventurer kind of reputation Mm -hmm. that he was given because he was not only a murderer, he was a kidnapper. He kidnapped babies. He kidnapped Aboriginal babies and Aboriginal children, sometimes just to exchange them for alcohol. He was just the most despicable human being. 
he, he wasn't fond of following orders. And when the going got tough, he would just disappear. And there, there are very public accounts of the killing of the Yule brothers in their respective roles. But there's likewise plenty of reports that congratulated them mm. for their efforts. And then, of course, there was the realisation that the far north of Queensland is deeply unsuitable. Yeah. For uh, sheep, at least. And that... Uh, resulted in Darcy forging the first route, actually, from Queensland into the Northern Territory and onto the goldfields. Look, it's been, it was a really hard book to read. Yeah. And I sound a bit down, you know, but I still would really recommend people to read this book because yeah. it's the most extraordinary chronicle of this period. I, I'd love to be able to name each Aboriginal tribe that they came into contact with the settlers and the squatters, with the native police. There are literally hundreds of different groups of Aboriginal people who were living peaceably on this great land. You know, I'm, I'm mentioning that there was resistance to this indiscriminate killing. You know, there were Aboriginal people and settlers that forged working and personal relationships and plenty of people that complained about the treatment of Aboriginal people to people in positions of authority. And there are also people of influence who tried to do something, but ultimately many more people of influence prevailed because nothing was going to get in the way of clearing the land. Yeah. What's pretty ironic is that in the 1800s in the UK, there were a lot of reforms happening. Yep. And they just didn't get anywhere near to Australia, yep, did the they? The Great Reform Bill. Yeah, 1834 um, was great that. Great reforms in relation to Catholicism and slavery. Yeah, huge, huge things happening in slavery. So despite there being so much public information, Ginny, I still, you know, as we've mentioned, we, you know, we really did grow up with this idea that the settlers arrived and it was terra nullis. There was no value given to the use of the land that the Aboriginals were putting it to. Yeah. I think we also grew up this idea that it was this tough existence yeah. and there were these incredible brave pioneers and all of this uh, information that was readily available and is in this book yes. just disappeared. Yeah, well, it was just ignored. There is no doubt that these um, convicts and all the people who came out to Australia were very tough. I think it would have been incredibly, an incredibly difficult environment. Sure, you know, sure. The heat and the just the general environment, the lack of infrastructure, starting from scratch, all of that. And it was definitely a young man's game. I mean, most of the men that we're talking about in this book are in their early 20s, yes. if not yes. their 19, you know, 19, Not 20s. so much the squatters. No. Well, as time went no. on, of course. But, yeah. I mean, Richard yeah. Jones, when he arrived, 23. was 23. Yeah, 23. It was a young man's game. And there, these are people who really don't have a lot of wisdom or life experience. Well, They're hungry. no life experience at all. Yeah. Yeah. No They're life hungry for, to make their mark in the yeah. world. Many of them come from families where they feel a pressure to yeah. make a mark in, in the new place. But they're all, a lot of them are people who don't, wouldn't fit in anywhere else. Many of them are people who didn't follow orders, couldn't work with other people, particularly the various commandants or however you pronounce it in the native police were often individuals who are only suited to going out and being on their own with a group of people and being in charge of yes. another group of Lone people. Lone wolves. Lone wolves, exactly. Yeah. They're not very desirable people 
And you can see that if you're somebody that doesn't fit in in a Victorian society and there's claims of great wealth yep. to be made uh, for people who dare, yep. who people who are prepared to take those risks, that yep. you think, well, that, that, that yep. could be for me. The other thing that I was struck by so many things, what, the first one was the fact that these people knew what they were doing was wrong mm. because of the lying. Mm. So there's a lot of fudging the language, a lot of using other words to sort of cover up what they were doing. You mean like dispersal or? Dispersing, a lot of behaviour that was um, designed to separate themselves from illegality. They knew exactly what they were doing was wrong. Reports back to England, you know, covered up what was going on or things just weren't reported. They were just talked about in the colony. And there, there was sort of this view that, People from England couldn't possibly understand what it was like to be here. And, and probably that's true. They probably couldn't understand but what it was like. But they did report the killings. I mean, the, it was in British newspapers. But not as, not, I don't think to the extent, you oh, know. Oh, you in, mean, in, yeah. in, in, not the bare bones of it. Like, no, 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 no. You, no. you know, like not in a raw sort of honest way. Mm. It was sort of, I don't know, I felt like it was fudged a lot. It was sort of played down and often the killings were done of people who turned out to be innocent. There were several stories in here where the um, Native police would go in and kill a peaceable group of Aboriginals, you know, sitting by a river and then find out that they were not the ones who were accused of having oh, done something absolutely. wrong over here. No, absolutely. I don't, I don't, I don't think that there's any so question often. of that. And it, when, when I say that there were clashes, yeah, the clash was often simply... yeah being killed to move them out of the yeah, way. Yeah, move them out of the way. It wasn't necessarily yeah. a provoked clash. Yeah. And often, you know, the worst of humanity came here, you know, amongst the convicts and the people who just didn't fit in back home. And so it's sort of not surprising that their behaviour wasn't, wasn't great. The other thing that shocked me really was it was the slavery. Mm. There was a lot of slavery, mm. which I don't think he's actually talked about mm. in that cold, hard term mm. or that terminology. But there was a lot of taking of young girls and there's no talk about what was done to those girls. Eight or nine-year-old girls were often taken by these men and kept. The native police definitely also, when they killed Aboriginal men, yep. they took the yep. women yep. and definitely took the women yeah. for sex. Yeah, and some of them traded them for mm. beer or mm. all sorts mm. of things. I, I call that slavery. I mean, mm. you just can't take another human being and, and not be answerable for it. But you know, I just, I found that really deeply upsetting. I found um, the whole book deeply upsetting. Yeah, and... The other thing is that it wasn't until 1876 that the sworn testimony of Aboriginal people was able to be heard. That is a hundred years. Yeah, no, it's extraordinary, um, wasn't it? And so that was I, I mean, it, it, may, it makes, I think, not only the Mile Creek massacre, but there were a couple of other successful trials. It makes them extraordinary that they happened. I yeah. mean, I think, I think the Mile Creek trial ended up being successful because a couple of stockmen gave evidence. Yeah. Um, which would have been highly unusual. From memory, there was a young boy who had witnessed yes. he'd yes. survived, he hid behind a tree. I think he was Indigenous, so he wasn't allowed to give evidence, but there was enough circumstantial evidence mm. that it was mm. um, Because they were, they were sitting, having a meal yeah. with white stockmen yeah. and singing yeah. at the yeah. time that it happened. Yeah. Mm. What a story. I really hope that this book is read in schools. Mm, I, just, I do too. It's just shocking to me that we were not mm. taught any of this. Mm. 
Well, I, yeah, I, def- I came out to Australia when I was 10 and did some Australian history at school. Uh, you know, there was always a term on the gold fields, you know, yep. the gold rush is always yep. was loomed large. Again, a sort of, you know, a pioneering period and yep. everything focused on wealth creation. And did you do all the discoverers? That's what we always yes, did. Yes, and the discoverers. Blacksland went with all, yeah, all of those Birkin people. Wills, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did all of that. Yeah. But but Terra Nullis. Oh, my God. Yeah. Just terrible. Just mm. terrible. Yes. Okay. So. We're going to go up a little bit. We can go up a little bit with this one. So yeah. I read Eden Glassy by mm. Melissa Lukashenko. So we've discussed Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko yes. in a previous episode of the podcast, and I just thought that book was marvellous. It was sort of joyful and funny as well as being filled with she is funny. some intergenerational trauma. Mm. Uh, it won the... 2019 Miles Franklin Literary Award and the Queensland Premier's Award for a work of uh, state significance. And Melissa describes herself as a Guri Aboriginal author of Bundjalung and European heritage. So this novel, Eden Glassie, is quite different from Too Much Lip, although it does have her distinctive writing style. It's a mix of historical uh, story and slightly into the near future. And it spans six generations or across five, I suppose, of Indigenous Queenslanders. And the language used in this is is quite uncompromising, mm. I would say. Mm. There are a lot of Indigenous words used sprinkled right throughout the book and there are no explanations. No. So the reader is required to they're quite contextualised, though, don't you think? Very well contextualised. Yeah. So you just have to go with it and yeah. figure it out. Yes, yeah, which, I, lo- it's which not, I love. I loved that. I loved yeah. that. It made me, I had to just wrap my head around it, but I thought mm. she's not pandering to the reader here. No, she's not. There's no list at the back. <laughs> uh, you've just got to get on get mm. on board. And, I, you know, you know why she did that. She did it for very obvious reasons. It does make it a little bit harder to read or a bit slower to read maybe. Yes. I just loved it for the most part. I do have a couple of little criticisms, which I'll come to later. Imagine us reading that in 20 years' time when Aboriginal language is possibly more yes. part of our yes. vernacular. Yes, We may not react. We, I, I would hope Wouldn't so. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. You think mm. about New Zealand and yeah. how they have all the Murray words yeah. Yeah. when you arrive at the airport and all that sort of thing. We, yeah, yeah. would be so cool. Our grandchildren go, could read that book and say, what, what's all the fuss yeah, about? Yeah, oh, I would love that. Mm. There are two parts near the end of this book where I had such overwhelming feelings. I just had s- such incredible goosebumps that I had to stop reading. It was so powerful. Mm. And one part actually made me cry, but in a good way. And amazingly, when I went back to reread this book in order to talk about it today, because I'd it'd been a bit of a time mm. gap between my first read and our conversation today, I had exactly the same reaction Mm. and the same overwhelming feelings. It wasn't sort of like, oh, here we are, here again. It was so powerful. She's such a powerful Mm. writer. So Eden Glassie is the original name given to the settlement of Brisbane, the capital city of Queensland, which was settled by the whites in 1824. And it was a portmanteau of Edinburgh and Glasgow. Mm. And the novel is set in 1840 
so very shortly after that early period, and in 1855, and then also in the near future, in 2024, which was quite clever because that will be exactly 200 years Mm. since the establishment of the colony. And for me, reading this really highlighted how young Australia is and how recent all these events are, and particularly because I had to do a bit of a family tree after I'd read the book to try and piece together the connection between the 1850 people and the people in the 2024 uh, story. And you you see how someone living in 2024 can be a grandchild of, of someone right at the very beginning of Australia. I and I, that just blows my mind. Oh, just picturing them, you know, with dirt roads and oh. little houses going up everywhere and chain gangs, chain gangs of convicts. Oh. I mean, it's just... It's hard to imagine. So I'm going to describe this book in terms of the two broad arcs of the stories because there's the old story and the the modern story. So the first arc is the modern story set in 2024. That's how the book opens. And it opens with a very old Aboriginal lady named Granny Eddie and she has a fall like old people unfortunately do. Yes. And she ends up in the, I think it's the Mate Hospital, near the South Bank in Brisbane. And Granny Eddie is a lady named Edwina Blanket, and she's a Yagara woman and she's almost 100 Mm. years old. She's actually 97. And she is the great-granddaughter of Nita, who is the young Aboriginal girl working Mm. for the Petrie family in Brisbane in the 1850s. So that's the connection between the The old story and the new story. And they've all been living in exactly the same spot around the Brisbane River and in particular on the south bank of the Brisbane River. And Eddie is quite injured from her fall. Her vision's been quite badly affected. She's a very old lady and she ends up staying in this hospital for many weeks for her recovery. And in the corner of her hospital room, she can see a ghost, which she thinks or she calls Grandpa Charlie. Mm. And Grandpa Charlie was the son of Nita, Mm. who's the sort of the founding woman of our story, our starting point. Mm. And while Eddie's there, a journalist with the splendid name of Dartmouth Rice (laughs) asks her if he can interview Eddie about her life and the stories of her ancestors. And so all the stories start coming out. And it's quite delightful because... The ghost in the corner interrupts the stories yes. and also <laughs> Granny Eddie doesn't let the facts mm. get in the way of the good, good story. story. She, she loves Absolutely. to exaggerate and because she knows that Dartmouth will be astonished by some mm. of the things she's got to say. So she doesn't necessarily stick to the truth, which is kind of delightful. She doesn't take it all too seriously. She just makes a bit of a joke out of Dartmouth, really, which is mm. all a bit of a fun. So Granny Eddie has a granddaughter named Winona who's a young beautiful young Aboriginal woman. She's an activist. She's very fiery, but she's also quite dedicated to looking after her grandmother Mm, after this incident. I think she she feels a bit of guilt that she hadn't been looking after her prior to It's very tender, that. Yeah, yeah. and she's very protective of her and feels very strongly that she wants to sort of um, come in and help her. And Winona and Granny Eddie become involved in some bicentennial celebrations (laughs) which bring the novel to this big full circle ending at the end of the book, which is where I had all my my goosebumps. Yeah. 
So the second arc of the story is the old story, and that's in the 1850s, in the exact same spot on the Brisbane River in the South Bank area. Where um, Edmund Jones, uh, uh, Richard Jones yep, and Edmund Ewer exactly, and had their properties. So Richard Jones had his at New Farm. That's right. And I was shopping in New Farm, not you know, not that long mm. ago. Like it's it's really quite crazy to, and, to think about that. But this is all pretty much set around where Brisbane was originally settled. So Brisbane was settled in 1824, and that's only 16 years on that this novel is is based. So everything is still very, very new, very probably pretty rough and ready, pretty hard times, I would imagine. No creature comforts at all. Pretty basic diet. I think there were patches where people went very hungry. They were waiting for ships to come in with food and all sorts of things. It was, it was You had to be a pretty mm. tough person to survive this. And at, Brisbane was originally part of the New South Wales settlement and some of the worst convicts were sent to Queensland, apparently. Mm. I think just to get them out of the way. Yes. So initially in the old story, we meet the elders, Yeren and his wife, Dawalbin, and they are a husband and wife. They are peacefully fishing They're mending a wallaby net. There's people harvesting honey or cutting sheets of ironbark to sell to the whites. And some visitors come in by boat and they have a conversation about the white invaders. Mm. And their conversation is along the lines of that they hope it will all come to an end and that these white invaders will go back to the motherland. And you sort of think it's sort of really... I don't know, it really situates you in the story because you realise that these Aboriginal people have been struck by this constant arrival of new white people and they keep hoping that they will find it so hard that they will go away and it will all just come to an end. Mm. Quite sad to reflect on Mm. that. And then in 1854, we meet a young man named Melanion, and he is a saltwater Aboriginal. So he's from the Narang River area, which is now the Gold Coast. Yeah. And he's a Yagumbe man, and he's been brought up here to Brisbane and adopted by the Brisbane Yagara Aboriginals. And he is really the main character. We follow his life living and fishing in Brisbane. He's all of his hopes and dreams and aspirations. He's hoping to marry Nita, who he falls deeply in love with. He wants to one day acquire a whaling boat of his own, taking his wife back to his homeland, to his family, and being an independent man with his own family. And that's his his big aspiration. And the story of Malanyan unfolds and he witnesses the hanging of the warrior Dundali. Yeah. Uh, which is a very famous, Dundali was a very famous, fierce warrior. Mm. Another character that uh, Malanyan meets is Freddie Walker, the Frederick Walker that you mentioned, Mm. who was the first commandant of the native police. And we meet the native police. He also, Malanyan's experiences a mass poisoning of Aboriginals Mm. with arsenic in the Mackenzie flower. Yeah. And this was you know, as you mentioned, quite a common occurrence because the whites realised that they might be at risk of a charge of murder if they shot at Aboriginals, so they decided to do it by stealth. And then the other thing that Melanian witnesses a lot of is the taking of young Indigenous children from their families and keeping them as slaves or selling them. 
Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of wrongful accusations, a lot of injustice. There's a lot of identity politics mm. and so much more. So Melanion, he's a very fit, uh, able young man, and he goes to work for Tom Petrie. The Petrie family were a big, slightly advanced, I would say, family who did peaceably live with the uh, local Aboriginals. They seem to have had a more progressive and perhaps more enlightened approach to dealing with the Aboriginals who were already there. They still took their land, but they... And they employed them. And they employed them, but but I know, they yes. weren't as aggressive no. and they certainly didn't, as far as we know from the records, didn't seek to exterminate them no. just to get them out of the way. They were benevolent. They, they were benevolent and yep. Tom in particular seems to have attended corroborees and other official yes. events and was really um, integrated into the society. Well, he grew society. up almost, didn't Yeah, he, really? he grew up with them. And he has decided to establish a pastoral property at Marumba Downs and he wants to head out there with a number of Aboriginal men. He gets them trained up to become stockmen, to teach them how to ride on horseback, and events become very dramatic for Malanyan on the mm. trip out on horseback with Tom, and the native police appear out of the blue one day. And it's not unpredictable how that story would go, and it's very important that it's told, but it's a very challenging part of the story. It's extremely challenging. Uh, you just, your heart just sinks, and particularly if you've read the David Marr book. Because it is just so completely unprovoked. Yeah, and completely unprovoked, and it's a wrongful accusation, which yeah. is always very hard to read. I don't want to spoil the story, so I'm not going to go into it in too much detail. There's so much detail in this story. It is actually almost sort of hard to review because there's so much information, but you are completely immersed in the life of being around at this time in Australia. Mm. And it's such a vivid experience. And for that reason alone, I just think that all school children should read it. Yeah. You know, in terms of walking a mile in Indigenous Australians' footsteps, I think this book is it. Yes. You can really put yourself in their shoes mm. and understand a lot more of the history and a lot more of what their life was like before yes. we got here. Yes. And the peaceable way that they were living, the way they were preserving the land, they weren't uh, raping the land and doing the things that whites have been doing to it. And we, if we did a bit more of that, we wouldn't be where we are now with climate change. She really sure. invites you, I think, into the humanity. Of, yeah. And, and so you, you don't think of Aboriginal people in an abstract no. way. You feel you're sort of travelling with them. Absolutely. And she does um, it really well. She does do she? it really, really well. But she's not glorifying them. They're just ordinary human beings. Yeah. And you're just right in there amongst them. Mm. So I just thought it was an incredible story and I thought it was incredibly clever the way she wove together. Uh, so Melanion, it turns out, isn't actually a blood relative of Edwina. No. He is a half-brother of her grandpa, Charlie. So Melanion was married to Nita and then Nita went and had some more children after Melanion and I won't go into any details there. So I, I really loved the book. The one character that did not work for me in this at all was Johnny. Yep. He was Granny Eddie's doctor at the hospital. Johnny is a young man. He's, you know, completed his medical training, he's working in the hospital and he's recently discovered that he has... 7% Aboriginal heritage. Yeah. And that his mother was of the stolen generation. 
He is very, very keen on Winona. And she's really not that keen. Um, <laughs> she's brilliant the way she is. She's, she's so feisty. Cuts him down. She she's just got cuts her him own down, agenda and her own plans for her life and he does not fit within those plans. Mm. But I just didn't feel that his dialogue and his inner thoughts matched up with someone who has completed a medical degree. Yeah. He just seemed a lot younger and more flippant and perhaps a lot less self-important yes. than I think a young medical resident yes. or intern would be. I thought that uh, Winona's treatment of him resonated accurately for me, that she was sort of pushing him away, cutting him down, and you're a bit of a Johnny-come-lately. Yeah. He's, he's telling me you're Aboriginal, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not interested. So yeah. that, that worked. Yeah. But his response to her didn't ne- yeah. didn't necessarily work for no, me. No, no. I, I just don't think she yeah. got that quite right. It didn't. He didn't feel to me like a young doctor. But for the plot purposes, it worked, particularly yeah. with the ending of the book. Yes. So I can see why she made him a young, ostensibly white medical doctor. But I just didn't think the dialogue was quite yeah. right. I, just, I really loved this book. I was so moved by the writing. And very few authors really, you know, make me feel to the extent that I did here. But I almost felt that sometimes it was a bit too Easter eggy. And I do love having to sort of work to make connections and and find little connections in things that are obscure or well hidden. But I felt like I had to do quite a lot of work in this one and I absolutely had to draw myself a family tree. (laughs) And I must say, with both of these books that we've done, I really wish the authors had done a family tree. Yes, well, there is a tiny one at the beginning of Native Police, tiny, but not, not one of any of any bearing, really. My book does not have. Oh, see, I've got one in mine. How interesting is that? So I would have, I want to, that is so interesting, Louise. Yeah, so mine's got one in. My book, so Louise and I are both holding open our editions. But but it is just the Richard Jones and the Ur Boys. That's all it is. But that's what I wanted to know. Yeah, that's Uh, all it is. Oh, my gosh, I cannot understand that. That is so bizarre. There you go. Yeah, I notice our books do look a bit different. Yeah. Mine's are thicker. yeah. There you go. Oh, We've got different books. So I different. did not get the family tree and I had to write my own. <laughs> so so this is my family tree, Louise. Oh, the back. <laughs> I scribbled it and it's a messy thing. And I do love a family tree because mm. I just, I, I was sort of trying to work out, well, which of these people is the character yes. that is David Marr's relative? Well, for me, though, I I, I would have appreciated it more with Eden yeah. Glassy because I did get a little. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. You can have a look at that. <laughs> <laughs> so... I just think that there is so much in the Eden Glassie mm. book that I think it would be a great book for a literature class to study. It's mm. not an easy read as a novel. I mean, it's not it's not a hard read, but you know, in terms if you if you're the sort of reader who really wants to understand the connections between the different generations, you have to yes. do a bit of work to figure yes. it all out. But having said all of that, I think this is a an excellent book, and yeah, I think that I every it. Australian should read this book. Yeah, I agree. So that was Eden Glassy by Melissa Lukashenko. Excellent review. I loved the book too. I found it very moving. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly the older narrative. I yeah. found very, very yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to mention because we've had a few changes of plans, <laughs> a few setbacks, <laughs> few setbacks uh, and I've had a terrible lurgy, and we're a bit late 
to recording this episode, there'll be a little bit of a delay for our episode of Salt River Road, Molly Schmidt's book. We are still doing it as our next episode. Yes. Uh, and we've received some lovely responses from some of you. Uh, I think we asked you to tell us what is your favourite Australian story. And we've received some responses and we'll be sending out some copies of the book to the winners at yep, the end of this got, week. We've got them here already. We've got them ready so to I'm go. looking forward to sending um, those out. So four lucky people will receive a copy of that book. And the episode's probably likely to come out just after Christmas. Yeah. So um, do have a read of it. Have a read um, of it. Before you listen to the episode because I think that will make it. You know, just that bit more it will. enjoyable. And it will be a deep dive. It'll, we'll be doing spoilers, so it might be fun if you read along with us. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what else have you been diving into lately? Uh, well, I have started the uh, new season of The Crown. Uh, they're, oh, they're teasing yes. us. This is this new thing yeah. that streaming services yeah. are doing half now. Half now and then yeah. half late. <laughs> they did it with Yellowstone. I, I did not appreciate it. Thank you very much. <laughs> So, yes, we've had the, the, the te- I mean, it's not a spoiler, is it? We've obviously, no. <laughs> it's not like I'm no. spoiling anything by saying that Princess Diana died. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we've had the episode up until uh, the crash in Paris and now they've decided to suspend it for a few weeks yeah. and then the rest of the episodes will be later. Yeah. And I wondered if it was a particularly, particularly because of Christmas, whether Netflix know. decided to not do that sure. or... It was just quite interesting what their, they, what their reasoning is. Anyway, they're suspending the tension. Uh, so I have started that and, I, I look, I wasn't sure how I was going to like the sort of more modern, more contemporary episodes. I'm not, uh, not really enjoying the actor, the characterisation of Prince William. No. no. I'm finding that a bit clunky. Yeah, that is that is the weakest uh, point. And I think. and I am loath to sort of pile on the crown because yeah. obviously they're people that are so visible publicly that it's easy to be critical I don't expect a character to be identical no but in his case I think it's a really clunky characterization it's a very negative characterization of Dodie it or, is. or of Muhammad <gasps> Al-Fayed I mean it's actually I would say Muhammad comes out I very think it's bad. quite racist very racist so I'm not uh, happy about that either. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned yeah, that because no. I, I, I think that's really. Yeah. Th- I'm surprised they got away with it. Yeah. Actually, I think they're going to be really criticised. It's not going to age well. It's not going to age well, at- and and seems really not of its time. Not it, of it, its it doesn't seem doesn't fit with the 2023 um, aesthetic. No, it doesn't at all. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm, not happy I'm about quite that at all. By that. Um, anyway, that's that, and I should mention that. You and I. Oh, yes. And our lovely husbands and all of our friends. Yes, a few friends. (laughs) Went to see The Rest is History podcast. Oh, my goodness. Dominic and Tom. So good. Who happened to be on a world tour. And uh, they've been to New Zealand and they'd been to the east east coast of Australia. And then they finished up in Perth. And you got to have breakfast. I did. I haven't haven't had time to ask you about any of this. Lots to talk about, Virginia. Lots to talk about. I did have breakfast with uh, with one of them, with Tom, which was very special. He's so nice. He's such a lovely man and uh, so erudite and very relaxed and chatty. Yeah, really, really lovely. And um, their young producers, Dominic and Theo, that, that. you know, I reckon must have a huge job on their hands. They do an amazing job. They do an amazing job. So the reason um, for mentioning it is that it is a podcast that we dip into all the time. Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the very first podcasts we mentioned on our podcast. Yeah. And we recommended it. And they've just 
they did a series recently on the assassination of JFK. They've done some great episodes recently. I'm I'm in the process of catching up at the moment. Yeah. I and got I'm behind, really enjoying it. So did I. I. I got behind on all my podcasts when we were overseas. And I like to go back and start and move forward. So I, that's what I'm doing. But I love the fact that when they started the podcast, and I can still remember the first episode, and they really didn't know if it was going to be successful. No. And they were a bit clunky, which I love because um, mm. we were very clunky when we first were still are a bit. What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't think I can compare myself. Very back then, we were so clunky. <laughs> now we're so polished. We're so smooth. It's such a polished thing. It's just a well-oiled machine. It's diving in. Pod- so they covered topics like they did World War One in one episode mm. or Churchill. In one- yeah. Now they've realised this thing has got legs and so yeah. they've gone back and things have now got eight and nine episodes and they've really gotten into but, it. But, you know, they are single-handedly, I think, responsible for education of, oh. of, of a generation of podcast listeners because, you know, I have learned so much. Me too. You know, and it, I, yeah. I would have been someone who said that I thought my history was yeah. not bad. Yeah. I, I just think yeah. it's they've been incredible. Yeah. And they've got, they're so clever. They've got such great memories. I just, I think they're Wonderful. And the dynamic between them is fantastic, delightful. isn't it, really? Um, yeah. You know, in terms of even their performance and appearance on stage, yeah. the kind of yin and yang between yeah. them is just brilliant, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I would agree. I think I think they're delightful. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, given, if you haven't listened to The Rest is History, which I would be very surprised yes. if you haven't, yeah. give it a go because yeah, yeah. it, there's something for everyone. It's fantastic. Mm. Oh, some of my greatest laughs have been... Mm. Uh, the, one where, the, the one where they did the Love Island yes. competition where they... Tom's put, daughter. Oh, my God, that was so funny. Yeah, that was um, so good. Different. And the ones where they start giggling, mm. there's a few where I've just lost it with laughter. So, yeah. Yeah, want really. Laugh. It's a really, really good. Yeah. And it's a good series to binge. Yeah. So do you want to ask me what I've been doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm just a bit <laughs> slow today. What have you been diving into, Ginny? <laughs> So I uh, have been listening to a new podcast. It's funny you should mention it, The Rest is History, because I've been listening to The Rest is Entertainment, mm. which is Richard Osman, mm. who we love because he's done the, the, Thursday. the Thursday Murder Club yep. books. I've now read all four. And he is joined by Marina Hyde. And I just love Marina Hyde. She's one of my, she's probably my favourite journalist I don't know if you've read any of her work. She's published in The Guardian and mm. she is sassy. She yeah. is so articulate. She uses language like nobody else and she remembers all the bad stuff people have done. So Fantastic. If she's written an article about Boris, she will pull out stuff that you've forgotten all about and it's sassy and it's clever and it's tight and she is just amazing. Well, she's also beautifully spoken. She's got this cut glass English accent. And there's only been, I think, two episodes I've listened to so far. So it's a brand new podcast. The first one, they talk a lot about British things that I know nothing about. I could still listen to them yes. all day. Mm. I loved it. So it's sort of, is it sort of social gossip? So the first one is a lot about I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Yeah, okay. And the various politicians who've gone on it, yeah. whether they should or shouldn't have and that sort of thing. Oh, yes, uh, Matt Hancock. Yeah, on. all yeah. of that. Yeah. So, And then the second one covers all sorts of other different things. So they 
The second one is a little bit about the Marvel enterprise and the films and how they're going, and but they pull in all sorts of things. They've got a wide web of knowledge um, because Richard Osman is very experienced in making television programs. Yes. So he sort of brings the insight of the people who are trying to fill in the time in the time slot of a half an hour, the problems and the the jeopardy, I suppose, that goes with things that go wrong. Mm. He, he's really interesting mm. from that point of view. And she's just got an encyclopedic knowledge about everything. Oh, she's, it sounds fun. She's and it sounds like a bit of, a bit of light relief, which yeah. is quite good, yeah. which we certainly need after this we, episode. We certainly do. We certainly do. So, yeah, I, I would uh, recommend The Rest is Entertainment. This comes from the same stable as The Rest is Goal History Hanger and The Rest is Politics. Yeah, Goalhanger Podcast so, mm. or Goalhanger Entertainment. Yep. Uh, so that's it for us today. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation. We hope you'll go and read these books because they are something that we think everybody should know about. Mm. And we will be back soon with another episode. Bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up